was born to an old and established English family in the year 1489. Received a classical education at Cambridge College, where he proved himself to be a very competent scholar. After graduating from Cambridge with his bachelor's degree, he remained on in their graduate program, giving himself to the study of theology and Bible in the original languages. During this period of graduate study, while he was reading the Old and New Testament in Hebrew and Greek and studying theology, he became acquainted with the Lutheran doctrines of grace that were circulating through Europe at the time. And it was at that time that Thomas Kramer became an evangelical. By faith, he committed himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he rejected a number of the abuses of medieval Roman Catholicism that had encrusted the church. Later on, he rose to a measure of prominence He was the theological mind behind the divorce of Henry VIII, which is of an interesting historical um, phenomena, enabling uh, Henry VIII to uh, get rid of Catherine Aragon, which he desperately wanted to do, but the uh, Pope would not authorize his divorce. And so it was through the theological advice of Thomas Kramer that the marriage was annulled and Not long after that, as you might imagine, Thomas Kramer was elevated to the position of the Archbishop of Canterbury over what was now known as the Anglican Church. During uh, during his time as the Archbishop and under the rule of Henry VIII, he wasn't able to do much to reform the church, although he was growing personally in his persuasions that the Reformation theology of Luther and Calvin was indeed uh, the measure of the true gospel. And so it wasn't until after Henry VIII's death in 1547 that uh, Thomas Kramer began to push through some of the reforms that he had been working on. Henry's son, Edward VI, was a boy king, and uh, he was uh, susceptible to the influence of Kramer, and so Kramer was able at that time to to bring about a number of significant changes, the most significant of which was what is known as the Book of Common Prayer, introduced in 1549, which laid out what still remains today for worldwide Anglicanism, the sort of the the basis or the core of of the Anglican Church. In there, they eliminated the the Mass in Latin and a number of other... uh, Issues. And so the Book of Common Prayer, introduced by Thomas Kramer, very, very significant. Well, Edward VI died prematurely, and his older sister, Mary Tudor, known as Bloody Mary, took the throne, and she was Catholic and devoted to stamping out the Reformation in England. And so under her rule, Thomas Kramer and a number of other evangelicals were persecuted and imprisoned. While in prison, Kramer spent three years under very, very harsh conditions, and he would not recant. He stood firm to his Reformation theology through three long, harsh years of imprisonment. 
And then his enemies came up with an alternative strategy and they let him out of prison and they, they restored a measure of public respect to him and they, and they gave him the, the, the um, trappings of power and, and prosperity and it was under that attack that they persuaded him to recant his Reformation views. So while in, in prison and under harsh conditions, he would not recant. But when they restored him under the, in the lap of luxury, it was too much for him. It overcame him, and he did recant. They had him sign a number of documents whereby he pulled back from all of the Reformation theology that he had so diligently given a good part of his life to to, to introduce into England. Well, once they got that public uh, document. His enemies were not going to let him go. He was still a heretic as far as they were concerned. And so he was rearrested, re-imprisoned, and he would be executed. But their grand finale was a public spectacle by which they were going to have him uh, publicly uh, recant all that he had recanted in writing. And so they gathered a number of people together and they sat Kramer down there and, and they, they set the stage for this public recanting. And so uh, Kramer there under uh, tremendous pressure stopped and he prayed and he asked the Spirit of God to strengthen him. And then when time came for him to speak, instead of publicly recanting all that he had recanted in writing, he turned the tables on his enemies And he said, that which I have done was a most serious mistake, that it was done uh, under weak faith, and that I will recant of my recanting, and I will seal it by the fact that when I am burned at the stake, my right hand will be thrust into the flames and burned first, for it was the offensive instrument by which I signed all of these documents." And so, as promised, Kramer was taken out, bound to the stake. The kindling wood was lit underneath, and Kramer thrust his right hand into the fire and held it there until it was a burned and charred stump. And what he said was, under fear of death, many things were written which are untrue. Therefore, my hand shall be the first to be punished. March 21st, 1556, Thomas Kramer died as a martyr. How is it? How is it that Thomas Kramer could be so weak and unstable in the face of adversity at one moment and so serene and bold the next? The answer to that question can be found, I think, in John chapter 18. And so I invite you to turn back there. John 18, beginning in verse 12 through 27, gives us a contrast. A very vivid contrast. We began to explore it last week. It's the contrast between Jesus and Peter and how they respond in the face of adversity. Jesus 
responds with serenity in the face of overwhelming pressure to recant, to, to bargain, to, to in any way pull back from the reality of who he was and what he had taught. And Peter, under nowhere near the same pressure that Christ faced, certainly showed himself to be very unstable. And so Jesus is marked with, with serenity. Peter is marked with instability. And as we look at it again this morning, I think we can draw a lesson that we could apply to the life of Thomas Kramer and to our own lives as well. So let me read John 18, beginning in verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest, therefore, questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I have said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said therefore to him, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Here is our contrast between Jesus and Peter. Now, we looked extensively last time at how Jesus responds, and we're not going to go through that in anywhere near the detail this time, but I will review quickly because we need to keep the contrast in mind. Jesus, as it says here, verse 12, he was there in the garden. He had just humbled a legion of Roman soldiers by the spoken word. Now they've recovered, and he has protected his disciples, and, and he's, he's redirected their focus entirely to him. His disciples are able to flee. Mark 14, 50 says they all get away. And Jesus himself is bound, and he is taken away. And as John tells us, and John is the only gospel writer to tell us this, he is taken first to Annas who is high priest, as he's called here, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, we spent a fair amount of time talking about Annas last week. And again, Annas was the power behind the high priesthood of, of first century Judaism. 
Annas himself served as high priest for about a dozen years. And then he had five sons and a son-in-law who all served as high priest successively after him. I labored away on the fact that Annas was, I think, what could be legitimately called a, a crime lord or a, or a mafia boss. He was the head of an extensive family who ruled in Israel in the temple area, operating what is known as the bazaars of Annas. When the, when the, the travelers came in to perform their sacrificial rites that they were required to do three times a year under the law, they had to exchange their foreign money for the temple coinage, and they had to exchange their sacrificial animals that could never pass muster with Annas's priests for the animals that Annas's people raised and sold. And in the process of exchanging money and selling animals, Annas and his family made a very handsome profit. He was exceedingly wealthy. He was deposed by the Romans, but that's okay because he just put his sons up one right after another. The high priesthood by that time was nothing more than a political plum that was available through intrigue and bribery, and Annas was good at both. And so although Caiaphas is technically high priest that year, verse 13, John is clear to point that out, Jesus, with his arrest, goes first to Annas because Annas is really the brains behind the operation. He's the boss. He's the Don. He's the Godfather. And so he has been looking to, to have a, an interview with Jesus for a long time. Jesus is the one who has upset his financial apple cart by cleansing the temple at the beginning of his public ministry and at the end of his public ministry. And so Annas wants the measure of the man, and he has Christ brought to him bound. We told you again last time that I'm persuaded that Annas and Caiaphas shared the same palace of the high priest and that there were just wings within the palace in which they and their families would reside and there was a large courtyard in the middle of that palace. It was to the courtyard that, of course, we'll see that Peter went. Now, while Annas is having his interview here with Jesus and there is two things that he is after here and you can, uh, you can see that in verse 19... The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. He wants to know the size and, and extent of Jesus' following. How big a crowd is, is following this arch enemy? How big is the rival gang, if you want to put it that way? And so he is trying to get a measure of that. He's interested in knowing not only how big is the organization, but how far has Jesus' followers penetrated into the hierarchy of Israel? He knows already that Nicodemus... A member of the Sanhedrin is now a follower. He may or may not have known about Joseph of Arimathea, a secret follower, but he's concerned that maybe this Jesus thing is spreading too far, too, too wide, too deep. And so he wants to know what's going on there. He also questions in verse 19 about his teaching. He wants to know about his doctrine. And the reason for that is he's looking for, a, for something legal to hang his hat on so that he can justify the execution of Christ that was already decided six weeks before. Indeed, John is very clear to point out to us, verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That is, Caiaphas, very much a knockoff of his father-in-law, is the one who said that, listen, the way to protect this organization here from the Romans, because if, if the people start following this Jesus character too much, they will upset the Romans, the Romans will sweep down in here, and they will wipe out our whole business operation in the temple. And we cannot possibly lose 
our source of income. The Pharisees were also in partnership by this time as well because Jesus had proceeded for three years to travel from synagogue to synagogue throughout the countryside and constantly embarrassed them in front of the people to point out the hypocrisy, to point out the, the uh, absurdity of the Pharisaical Judaism. And so the Pharisees were mad at him, and the Sadducees were mad at him. And so at the raising of Lazarus, John 11, they all came together and conspired and said, well, this man must go. And Caiaphas says, of course, of course. It would be good for one man to die, more expedient for one to die on behalf of the people. And of course... John tells us being high priest that year, he prophesied from the Lord that the death on behalf of the people was not what he was thinking. God was going to use it in a far more profound way as in the atonement for his people. So Annas is questioning Jesus here in John 18. Meanwhile, Caiaphas is calling together a small group of, of Sanhedrin members who were loyal to him that he might conduct a little more official inquiry. If you like, Annas could be thought of as some sort of grand jury inquiry. He's looking for some reason to, to, to execute Jesus. And while he's doing that, Caiaphas is gathering together a network of a few cronies, and they're going to, they're going to more formally try Jesus. All of this is going on at night, we noted, that this trial was entirely illegal from start to finish. In fact, it's not really even a trial it is merely a sham, it is an inquiry, it is an attempt to get Jesus to say something that will incriminate himself so that they can kill him. And so from beginning to end, there is nothing legal about this operation. And, and indeed, to even call it a trial is a misuse of the word trial. There are three phases to what goes on here. Again, from last week, we noted there is the phase with Annas. There is the second phase with Caiaphas, which occurs at night as well. And then there is the final phase before Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin. As soon as the rooster crows, dawn cracks and it becomes daylight. And then they try to put an official legal veneer on top of the verdict that has already been rendered. So that is the three phases of what's going on there. And before it all, Jesus is incredibly serene. Annas, in fact, um, is pressing Jesus, and Jesus won't answer him. In verse 21, he's trying to get him to, to either incriminate himself or, or, to, or to speak, and Jesus won't say anything to him except for the fact that, uh, that he says, listen, it's kind of a backhanded way of rebuking Annas, verse 21. He says, where are your witnesses? You can't have a trial without witnesses. First off, you can't have a trial at night, but if you're going to go this route, you've got to have witnesses, so where are they? You want to know what I taught? Then ask the witnesses. I spoke openly. I spoke publicly. Gather them in. Let them say. Bested at this point, of course, Annas has nothing to say, but one of his flunkies reaches out and slaps Jesus in the face, trying to make himself look good before his boss. And he says, you know, is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus responds, not in revenge. We read this morning in Matthew 5, he turns the other cheek. By the way, in Matthew 5, it says when one slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Do you ever wonder why it says the right cheek? A right-handed man to slap someone on the right cheek has to hit him with a backhand. It's an insulting slap. Jesus here has been, has been uh, unduly uh, slapped here. He's, been, he's being um, unduly treated, and he responds without any personal vengeance at all. And he just says back to them, listen, if I've said something wrong, 
you know, bear witness of the wrong. But if I haven't, then why are you slapping me? Very serene, very calm, very much in control of all that's going on. And he bests Annas at his own game. Verse 24, Annas sends him off bound to Caiaphas with nothing to say. The other gospel writers tell us as well that before Caiaphas, Jesus is absolutely silent. Like a sheep before his shearers, he says nothing. He will not respond. They bring one witness after another. The witnesses contradict each other. They can't get any consistent testimony. Finally, they find two people who, who come together, and, they, and the, even their charge is not legitimate, but they say that Jesus said he was going to knock down the temple and build it back up in three days. Well, that's not enough to execute somebody over. And so at this point, Caiaphas is absolutely at wit's end. Dawn is approaching. They must get Jesus killed before the city wakes up. And so he's got a lot of work to do. And he turns and he puts Jesus under oath. And he says, I adore you under the, before the living God. Are you the Son of God? And under oath, Jesus speaks. And he says, it is as you say, I am the Son of God. And not only am I the Son of God, but you will, you will see me coming in my glory, when I bring righteousness to the earth. Now, that's enough for Caiaphas. He can't stand it anymore. He rips his robe. He says, blasphemy. You've heard it yourselves. What do you say? They all said he deserves death. Blasphemy. They start slapping him around and, and punishing him and beating him. All of that going on in the nighttime hours. Meanwhile, there's Peter. Meanwhile, there's Peter. Verse 15 Peter's following after Jesus. So was another disciple. You know, you have to... Um, Peter's easy to beat up on in one sense. It's a real temptation as a preacher to find Peter and just kind of... He's your whipping boy, you know? And that's probably because he's so much like us. But there is much to commend Peter for. All the other disciples fled. And look again, verse 15... Simon Peter was following after Jesus. He loved him. Peter loved Jesus. I get the picture when Jesus was, was conducting his public ministry and he's walking along and teaching, you know, and, and if he would stop, Peter would, would step on the back of his heel. I think that's how close Peter followed Christ. He was like a puppy dog. Everywhere he went, he could not be away from him. Where else will we go, Lord? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. And so Peter, although scattering in the garden, so bold for a second when he wants to take on the Roman legions, right? And then fleeing, can't stay away long. And so Peter is following after Jesus, and so was another disciple. It says, verse 15, I believe this other disciple is John. It is John. And, and one of the reasons I believe that is because of the testimony that is given here are things that I believe only an eyewitness could know. And so I think it's John here with Peter. So they follow at a distance. Jesus, he's bound. He's being taken to the, the palace of the high priest. And Peter and John are, are following after. Now, verse 15, you see it. The disciple was known to the high priest and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. Wow. John, if you'll grant me that, has access into the palace of the high priest. Poor Peter, he's standing on the outside. Now, uh, you know, commentators and historians are, 
are, uh, many agree that it's John, but they're scratching their heads trying to figure out how it is that John could gain access into the, into the palace of the high priest and be known, as he evidently is, to the high priest. And not just to the high priest, beloved, but he is known to the gatekeepers, the slaves of the high priest. They let him in. Well, one possibility, and it's okay by me, is that uh, John's fish business that his father, you know, he's one of the sons of Zebedee, his father Zebedee, had a very thriving and successful fishing business in Galilee. And uh, successful enough that he had a number of workers and slaves uh, that, that conducted the business for him. And so one thinks that perhaps the type of fish and the way they were salted and prepared there in Galilee, the high priest happened to have a, a taste for and so the, uh, he, uh, John was known to them through his father for their long-standing business arrangement of providing fish to the house of the high priest. I don't know. That's probably as good an answer as any. But in any case, John is entered in. He goes right into the palace, but Peter, he's standing outside. Verse 16. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So John turns around and goes back to the door and he says, he's with me. He's okay, bring him in. So he enters in as well. Verse 17, the slave girl, therefore, who kept the door, said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Fascinating question. Fascinating question. The way this question is grammatically arranged in the Greek, it expects a negative answer. The question is, um, you're not really one of this guy's disciples also, right? That's the way she's asking the question. She, she expects him to say no. And notice, by the way, it says, one of this man, also one of this man's disciples. Do you see that? Verse 17, also. Who's the also? Who's the other? It's John. She knows John. She knows John's a follower of Jesus. So she turns to Peter and she says, you're not like this guy, are you? So John goes along with the answer, right? Verse 17, John said, I'm not. She has given him a clear out. She expects him to say no. That's the way the question is structured. That's the, that's the way of escape. That's the, 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 the line, the tack she's taking with him. And John, I think probably before he even knew what hit him, opens his mouth and says, I'm not. I'm not. And so, seeing a, an escape, John or a Peter grabs it. Peter grabs it. I think before he even knows what, what's hit him, he, he grabs it and he, he says, I am not one of his disciples. I don't think Peter had any idea where this path would take him. Just in a moment of weakness, in a, in a snap second, the question is asked and, and he denies his Lord. I mean, this is Peter that an hour earlier had drawn out his big fishing knife, right? And he had whacked off the ear of the slave of the high priest, and he's ready to take on a whole Roman legion, 600 soldiers. And now, a slave girl knocks him flat. How does that happen? How does that happen? The answer is, he was unprepared. He was unprepared for the conflict. The, the question caught him by surprise. He was not ready. 
He was not really sure what he was doing. He was following after Jesus because he loved him and it, and it drew him like a vacuum right into the courtyard of the palace of the high priest. So he's right now in the camp of the enemy. And on the way in, this little slave girl, she's looking at him, she's kind of staring at him a little bit and she says, you're not also one of his disciples. He says, I am not. Boom! Like that, the trap is sprung and he's caught. Crumbles. How like Peter we really are. How many times do we find ourselves unexpectedly tripped up? We've got all these bold, you know, intentions. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, and like a little hidden tripwire. Some innocuous question or whatever. It just catches us and down we go. For example, maybe you're at work and you're... Uh, your boss unexpectedly asks you the question, did you do such and such? And, and you know you're supposed to, to do it. And at that moment when he asked the question, you had forgotten about it. And he asked the question, it brings it to your mind and you know you were supposed to have done it. And before you're even able to really frame an answer, you say yes. Boom. Instant response. Yeah, you lie. I did do it. Yes comes, comes right out of your mouth. Or maybe you're at a, uh, a family party or some sort of gathering of your co-workers. And the conversation, as it inevitably does, turns to matters of religion. And there is this, um, people are expressing their various viewpoints. There's this really outspoken, strong personality. And this, this person begins to launch in with a forcefulness about how, how could God possibly be so exclusive as Christians claim and, and letting people go to hell and that's hateful and that's wrong and any kind of God like that couldn't be the true God and so I don't know how you'd follow a God like that and, and you've been wanting to say something. You know, you've been on the edge of your seat waiting for a pause in the conversation. You're about ready to say something and the person interjects that kind of a strong statement like that and you don't say anything. Right? Your lips are sealed just momentarily. And then the conversation moves on and, and you're left there going, how did that happen? I wanted to say something. I, wanted, you know, I was going to say something and then frailty, weakness, I faint. And you're left feeling rotten. Like you're, what kind of Christian am I? What kind of follower of Christ am I? A lie? Just like that? I have a chance to speak for my Savior and I let it pass me by? Just like Peter. Just like Peter. And, the, you know, the way you feel, that's probably the way that Peter felt. All that bravado, all of that, you know, I'll follow you anywhere, Lord. Everyone else may flee from you, but I will never leave you, Lord. Gone. Deflated. A simple slave girl. A, a quick question that catches him off guard. Peter's lying flat on his face. Flat on his face. But notice, rather than recovering, verse 18, take a look back and see what Peter does next. See, his free fall hasn't ended. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold. And they were warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. You get a picture of that? Peter, what are you doing? What in the world are you doing? You are now standing, warming your hands over the fire with the enemies of Christ. 
You were the one who was going to follow him no matter where he went. You were the one who was never going to deny him. Now, first, you, in, a, in a moment of weakness, you, you disown him, and now you're standing with his enemies, warming your hands over the fire. Beloved, this is no place to build your spiritual health. This is the wrong place to be. If he thinks he's going to recover from his lie by doing this, there is no way. It's going to only intensify the pressure on him. It's only going to intensify it. See, Peter's problem is he failed to plant his flag early. He failed to plant his flag. And the, when the New World was discovered, the European nations sent out their explorers, right, and they, they discovered the New World, they would plant what was called plant their flag. When we went to the moon, we put an American flag right on the moon. Okay? You unfurl your colors. You show your colors. You, you declare who you are and that this ground belongs to you. And so you plant your flag. See, that's what we have to do when we go into a new situation. You go into a new job. First thing you do is you have to plant your flag. You have to declare yourself a follower of Jesus Christ right up front. As boldly as you can muster it, you do that. And then you, let, you put all the world on notice that you are a follower of Christ. That does two things. First, it, it will give you tremendous opportunity to speak in the days to come. Secondly, it will give you um, some backbone. Because you will have already declared to the world that I'm a follower of Christ. And now when the opportunity comes to, to kind of you know, um, slice it a little uh, thinner than you ought to, you've already declared your allegiance. So you, you unfurl your flag, you show your colors, you declare your loyalty. Peter didn't do that at the door with the slave girl. Think again. Notice what she said. You are not also one of this man's disciples. She already knows John's a disciple, and John apparently doesn't have any problem with that. It was Peter. It was Peter who wilted. And so there, when he doesn't show his colors at the beginning, it's only downhill from there. The same thing happens to you and I. If you don't show your colors early, if you are a, you're a closet Christian, you're a secret follower of Jesus Christ, then what happens is that the longer you remain secret, the harder it is to become public. And so you remain as a hidden follower of Jesus Christ, sort of moving through life incognito. Peter's standing there at the fire now, warming his hands. Now, as we, uh, if we were to go and to look at the other gospel accounts and try to reconcile this, we would find that there is a, there's a point of disharmony here. John reports this first denial, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 17. Then in verses 25 and 27, he reports the second and the third denial. Do you see those? You remember now that it was Jesus who had prophesied earlier in the evening in the upper room, John 13, 38, that Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. So John is very careful and clear to bring to us three denials. The problem arises is when we look at the synoptic gospels, the, there are other denials according to the synoptics that don't quite fit here. And that leads the harmonizers of gospels to a problem. And that is that either there are more than three denials which is a very strong possibility. Or John has, for his own literary purposes here in verses 25 and 27, 
separated the third denial into two installments. You can kind of go either way that you'd like. I, I've gone back and forth on it, and I'm not even sure standing here before you this morning where I'm at. Okay? Yesterday I was one place, tomorrow I'll be somewhere else. So it's either there are, either John splits the third denial into two, into two and just leaves the second denial out altogether, or there are more than three denials. The more I talk to you, the more I'm leaning now towards it, there were more than three denials. Matthew is very clear, by the way. You just jot this down. Matthew 26, verse 71. Look it up on your own. That they, they, Matthew presents a second denial with another slave girl near the gate, not near the fire. And so it's possible. Let me just kind of paint this for you. It's possible. Comes in through the gate. The slave girl, she's, she's looking intently at Jesus. He's kind of, or uh, John. He's kind of wandering towards the fire. She comes over and she makes the first confrontation. John, or uh, Peter denies it. Not a lot of trouble between all these characters, right? Peter denies it. He goes to the fire. He's warming his hands. He's kind of standing there wondering, okay, what's going on now? He, he starts away from the fire, back towards the gate. Another slave girl comes up to him, according to Matthew 26, 71. She says, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denies it again. So there's two. And then he's kind of wandering around again, maybe back to the fire. He's, he's very unstable at this point. I mean, just don't lose sight of the fact that he has declared that he will not deny Jesus, though everybody else does. And at every place he turns, he's confronted and he denies. This man is broken at this point. So it's very possible back to the fire again and then pick it up there in verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They, notice the they, said therefore to him. It looks like the question is being picked up and asked by a number of different people. Peter's standing here, according to John 25. He's in the flickering glow of a charcoal fire. If you've ever made a campfire and it finally dies down to the coals, right? There's not a tremendous amount of light. It's sort of a flickering kind of light. And so there in that flickering light, he, people are looking at his face, a little bit of shadows perhaps, and, and they say to him, you are not also, here it is again, one of his disciples, are you? And he responds, I am not. I am not. Everywhere he turns, it's coming at him. He's on the ropes. It's like a prize fighter on the ropes. Okay, He can't get away. Everywhere he turns, there they are. They're coming, in, coming at him. Are you a follower of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? No, no, no. Verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, if you were related to a guy whose ear was just whacked off an hour ago, and was miraculously restored, you would probably remember the person who did it. Okay? So at this point, they are zeroing in on him. But Peter is entirely broken at this point. He is a broken man. Verse 27, Peter therefore denied it again. The synoptic writers tell us he denied it with an oath and a curse. He cursed took an oath. Absolutely not. I'm not a follower of his. And immediately a cock crows, it says. By the way, I think putting together the, the, um, the chronology here, a cock crows at the break of dawn, right? This would be the time Jesus was probably being kept in some sort of a room or maybe even a kind of a little... Um, dungeon-like thing, prison cell, kind of in a basement area of the courtyard. 
When the cock crows, dawn arrives, it's time to bring the prisoner to the full gathering of the Sanhedrin so that they can make official the the condemnation that has already been declared. And so Jesus at this time is being paraded across the courtyard to be brought before the whole Sanhedrin. This is the final denial of Peter. Under oath, cursing. The other writers tell us that Jesus looked at Peter. I think that Jesus is being marched along. He kind of looks, he hears the cock, you know, looks over his shoulder. He hears Peter's denial. The cock crows. And they say that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Bitterly. He's absolutely broken. He is undone. He is the picture of instability. He is everything his master was not at that moment in time. Why? What's the difference? How can they respond so dramatically different? Why did Jesus prevail and Peter fail? Beloved, the answer is dependence. The answer is dependence. How did Thomas Kramer falter and fail and then stand in a fire and hold his right hand? I don't know how many of you have ever been burned, right? What's the natural reaction when you're burned? It's to jerk that hand away. He stood and he held his hand, his right hand, into the fire until his arm was nothing but a charred stump. How can a man who wilts on one moment do that on another? How can Jesus stand firm in the face of all of that evil and wickedness and they're beating him and slapping him and punching him and mocking him? Peter is bested by a couple of slave girls. How does that happen? The answer is dependence. Who were they depending on? Jesus was depending upon God for his strength. Peter was depending upon himself. It's as simple as that. Peter was confident in his own ability. Peter did not sense his great need for divine help. He had said earlier in the evening, Lord, though everybody deserts you, I will not desert you. In the face of the Roman legion, he draws out his fishing knife and he's going, to, he's going to take them on. He's got a boldness that goes way beyond his abilities. You know how I know this to be true? I know it to be true by their activities in the garden prior to the arrest. What was Jesus doing in the garden prior to his arrest? He was praying. What was Peter doing in the garden prior to the arrest. He was sleeping. It's really that simple. Jesus was praying. Peter was sleeping. Jesus, the Son of God, sensed the need for divine enablement to face what he was about to face. Peter, overcome perhaps by the lateness of the evening, the bigness of the meal, and the wine that was involved, sensed the need for sleep. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Jesus prayed. Peter slept. Beloved, I think it's that simple. I really do. I think for you and for me too, it's really just that simple. 
When we sense our dependence upon God, we come to God in prayer. He strengthens us for the task at hand. But all too often, we walk in our own strength. We are drawing from our savings account of of spiritual investment, which for most of us is pretty small. And so we get up on Monday morning and we don't spend any time with the Lord. We don't pray. We don't spend time in His Word. We don't need to. We were in church on Sunday. And then Monday morning comes and it crashes in on us like a ton of bricks and we wilt like a cheap daisy that we bought from a street peddler. Why? Why is that? To my own shame, I share with you an illustration of this. Some months ago, I went out on Sunday afternoon with the neighborhood ambassadors. And I I hadn't prayed before I had left. I hadn't really got myself mentally prepared to do this at all. I was tired. I just showed up. So I showed up, and out I went with everybody else. And, and we went up to a house and, and uh, opened the door, and uh, we started to, t- to speak to the people, and, and the person says something. And, and could I think of a scripture verse to respond? Not to save my life. I was standing there, bub, I had no I couldn't even think of a single verse. So they ranted and raved and said everything they wanted to say, and then the conversation was over. And, gee, thanks for taking our survey. What a bust. You know, I hung my head and I walked down the walk. And I thought, oh, Lord, what a waste that was. What a shame. I'm shamed. It's dependence. It's knowing that we're dependent, the reality that we are dependent, and then acknowledging it and asking God's strength to see us through. Beloved, it's everything. We're dependent everywhere. You want to do evangelism? You can't do evangelism unless you acknowledge your dependence upon God in Christ. You seek His power. You want to do ministry? You can't do ministry. Not in the flesh, not with any value, not with any lasting consequences. Oh, you can go through the motion. You can churn it out. You can be pretty good. But it doesn't have any power. No substance. Lives are not changed. Unless your ministry is done in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Dependence is everything. It's everything. It was everything for Thomas Kramer. It was everything for Jesus. As Peter learned, it was everything for him. By the way, Peter redeems himself, right? the end of his life, he's crucified for his faith. And he says, not like my Lord, crucify me upside down, for I am not fit to die as my Lord died. Peter recovers. I'm sure glad to know that Peter recovered because uh, that means that you and I can recover too, huh? Let's pray. Well, our Father to come face to face with our own frailty, our own weakness, our own sinfulness, is never pleasant. For our Father, we are very good at wallpapering over these things and pretending that we've got it all together. 
But Lord God, when we look into the scriptures, we allow the searchlight of your word to really penetrate our hearts. We recognize that we don't have it all together and that we are very much just like Peter. Father, thank you for revealing that truth to us this morning and thank you for the encouragement to know that we're not helpless in that state, that there is a solution and the solution is dependence upon you. Lord God, grant us to seek that dependence. Father, deliver us from our self-sufficiency. Humble our hearts, our Father, before you. Teach us to depend upon you moment by by moment. And then glorify yourself greatly and mightily through us. Even, Lord God, if it were to take us the path of Thomas Kramer, may you grant us that kind of faith. We pray in Christ's name.